HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nyman Ranch. I'm Paul Willis, a fifth-generation farmer and co-founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Learn more about us at nymanranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty and the jazz is musicians. It's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, I'm Diane Stemple on Heritage Radio Network uh, for Cutting the Curd. Today, I want to welcome Mark Kurlansky, writer of Milk, a 10,000-year food fractus. I read your cod book, I think, when it came out uh, long ago, and I read it around that time, and I was fascinated by its perspective so I was very eager to read and discuss milk with you, but didn't realize how much more complicated it would be. And it's a <laughs> long, long story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> cod is is basically a thousand-year history, and this is like ten thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! I, I, well, the size of the book was one thing. That was a, that was my first clue. Right. <laughs> But then it was like, oh, wow, this is complicated. It, it's yeah, well, it is. And, you know, I mean, people have been fighting over it forever. And it's not really very surprising if you think about what it is. Uh huh. You know? Were you surprised? Now, how did you come to write the book Milk? Oh, well, um, a magazine called Modern Farmer yes. asked me to write something about milk. Mm-hmm. They were very unspecific about what they wanted me to write. Uh-huh. It's a great magazine. Uh, yes, it is. And um, so I went checking around in dairies uh, in the 
Hudson Valley and places close to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I very quickly discovered that uh, dairy farmers who uh, live on a very narrow margin mm-hmm. are dealing with a ton of different controversies, and these mm-hmm. controversies can be a problem, but they're also an opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, and that this is the reality that dairy farming lives in. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, if um, grass the idea of grass-fed cows is, is popular, um, but if it's if you if you don't live in a place that has grass all year round, that becomes complicated, mm-hmm. and uh, it produces less milk per cow. And the economic formula that all dairy farmers work on is how much milk per cow yes. uh, you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you have something special about your milk that you can charge more for because right. the 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 government recommended price which everyone is stuck for is is too low mm-hmm. so farmers are interested in doing something special so that mm-hmm. they can get a price above that mm-hmm. so you know I, I i quickly came to understand what a complicated business this is mm-hmm. so that got you interested right mm-hmm. now your book salt and cod seem much more similar to each other as books than milk. Is that, would you say that's true? You know, I don't know. I don't, um, I, I, I don't think about it. I don't, I don't think in that way. I, mm-hmm. um, I actually, when I finish a book, I very quickly move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and, I, and I tend not to look back. Okay. Um, So, I don't know, you may be right about that. I just Mm -hmm. never thought about it. Okay. Now, um, what was your game plan initially for this book, and did it change as you researched? Um, Well, my game plan was, I mean, to start with the ancients and and work up to the present and, Mm -hmm. and, and show how uh, these controversies uh, keep being dealt with, and mm-hmm. uh, um, and I don't know that I had any big surprises. I, I think I didn't realize at first how few people actually drank milk until uh, uh, modern times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Because uh, it's dangerous, you know. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, less dangerous with pasteurization, but uh, and and also and with refrigeration and refrigeration and yes. modern technology for preserving raw milk. Yeah. Uh, but you know, up until the 20th century, it was it was very dangerous, and mm-hmm. um, by and large, people the only people who drank milk were people who lived on farms because mm-hmm. even though they didn't know what bacteria was and didn't really understand what the source of the danger was, it was, it was understood that milk had to be really fresh to be safe. Mm-hmm. So if you lived on a farm, uh, you know, you go back to old uh, recipes mm-hmm. uh, that use milk and they actually say, you know, take the bucket, go to the barn because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's the only safe milk. Right. Right. Now, how did you decide which recipes to include in the book? And there are many 
I think, historical recipes, are there not? Yeah, mostly. Most, yeah. Most, mostly. Um, I, I love recipes. I love historical recipes. I love them as mm-hmm. um, artifacts mm-hmm. uh, that tell us about history and past times. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they used to be much more interesting the way they were written mm-hmm. um, until people like Fanny Farmer came along and tried to make recipes a scientific formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to be much more expressive and give the cook much more leeway in how they did things and mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, you learned a lot about a society by looking at these old recipes. Mm-hmm. Were there any recipes in cod? I don't recall. Oh, yeah, quite a oh, few. Oh, okay. okay. Quite a few. I guess I don't eat that much cod. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> what so, can I say? So I um, didn't I didn't remember them. <laughs> yes, I, I have uh, a lot of recipes in, in many of my books. Okay. Because I just... You I like recipes. recipes. Yeah. Okay. okay. So there's so many things that I did not know uh, about milk and uh, cheese and, and butter was considered filthy. Well, yeah. I mean, there were all of these. There were all of these prejudices. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the Romans were very contemptuous. The Romans went to Europe and discovered that people were eating, uh, using milk and butter and dairy products mm-hmm. much more than they did. And mm-hmm. of course, in, in in their society, most of the stuff was just used by farmers, mm-hmm. uh, except you know, cheese and. Uh, yogurt and mm-hmm. uh uh so what often happens with societies is that people tend to be contemptuous of things that farmers do because farmers mm-hmm. are supposed to be backwards mm. uh even though they actually know more than we do but somehow right. um and so um you know, the Romans reported that all these people in Europe were really backwards. They were right. using lots of butter and drinking mm-hmm. milk and all these backwards things that, in you know, in Italy, only farmers were doing. Mm-hmm. In, like, one phrase is the barbaric use of butter by the Irish. Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that seems it's crazy a, to me. I love the, butter. It's the fate of the Irish that they always do wonderful things and get called barbarians for it. <laughs> I guess so. It's, I mean, I love butter. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? <laughs> right. Now, and also, cheese heads uh, was an insult for Dutch people at one time? Yes. Yeah, because they ate so much cheese. They were, <laughs> this was a sign of, of backwardsness. And, uh-huh. and until... You know, until Holland became the most successful country in Europe, you know, with the most <laughs> developed economy and everything. And then people started thinking, oh, maybe there's something to eating cheese. Right, right, right. Cheeseheads today, of course, are supporters of the Wisconsin teams. Right, right. <laughs> now, no dairy was allowed on holy days? I didn't know that. I mean, I knew you couldn't eat meat on holy days. Well... Yeah, I mean, this was a um, a, a huge thing. It's uh, um, it's why whaling was popular, and I mean, there 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 used to be about half of the days of the year were considered holy days, and mm-hmm. and 
food was divided into warm food and cold food, mm-hmm. um, which it still pretty much is in China. It's a concept that Europeans have dropped, but Asians have kept. But not hot temperature it, 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 it versus cold temperature. It doesn't have to do with temperature. temperature. No, right. it, it, it has right. to do with some um, metaphysical kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What are hot mm-hmm. foods and what mm-hmm. are cold foods? And 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 hot foods cannot be eaten on holy days because, as everybody knows, hot foods lead to sex. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So you know, if you if if you have fish for dinner, you'll behave yourself. But if you have a steak, look out. Oh, okay. Okay. I <laughs> that did was the not. that was the thinking, and 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 milk. Um, milk was considered a hot food. It was actually considered white blood because it was this liquid that came from bodies and. Right. Um. Yes, white and, blood. That's a totally foreign concept to me. Yeah, so so half the days of the year you couldn't use milk, and that's actually the origin of almond milk. Oh, interesting. Uh, you'll see in medieval recipes they will say, you know, <clears throat> take a cup of milk or almond milk, mm. meaning if it's a holy day, use almond milk. Oh, okay, okay. So almond milk was around long ago. Yes, yeah, yeah, in the Middle Ages. Now, how did milk get into the innards of butchered animals to quickly make cheese? What do you, what's your impression of how that happened? I'm sorry, I didn't follow that. How How did milk get into the innards of butchered animals to quickly make cheese? You mean how did butchered animals get into milk? No, no. How did it get the milk get into the butchered animals so that it it uh, made cheese? The butchered animals, the the stomach, the the fourth stomach. Yes, you mean you're you're, you're talking about the, the the. How did cheese begin? How did cheese begin? Well, we can only sort of guess at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's your opinion? Um, well, I don't. You know, there's always these these stories about how you know they carried milk in a in a, a bladder or a stomach or something, and you know, at the end of the horse ride, oh, look at that as cheese. Mm-hmm. But there's too many stories like that to believe them all. That's also the origin of yogurt and all ah, sorts of things. Okay. So, so I'm. Uh, you don't buy it. I I I, I don't buy it. Um, uh, they somehow figured out that you had to make curd to make cheese. Mm-hmm. And you don't, by the way, have to make curd from animals. You can make it from grapes or mm-hmm. uh, a, a, mm-hmm. a number of other things, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, you know, why you can have kosher cheese. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, there's a long story of ice cream in your book. Yeah. What are the highlights for you of the ice cream story? Well, um, I mean, first of all, it's it's just terrible to imagine a world without ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Um, And uh, I kind of love these. 
vendors in American cities that, you know, have these little glass cups and you pay a little bit of money and you get this cup, completely unhygienic, you know. <laughs> it's like my mother never would have gone for this. <laughs> um, but you get a little glass dish with, with some ice cream in it and you eat it and you hand back the glass dish and they use it again. <laughs> But, um, you know, the, the, the nice thing about the history of ice cream is it's very clear that wherever ice cream was introduced, people just loved it. Uh-huh. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And, and it's popped up in many places. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and many variations on it. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. Indians have, in India, they have their own variation on ice cream, which is sold on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, ice cream is much older than freezers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So for a long time, it was something you couldn't have at home. Right, right. You had to go to the ice place. Right. <laughs> right. There's, a, um, there's an ice cream recipe in the book that I particularly like for... Uh, a coffee ice cream. It's Italian, of course. Mm -hmm. um, Artusi Pellegrini. It's wonderful uh, um, kind of espresso ice cream recipe. Mm. There's a number of ice cream recipes. Yes, I noticed. They're all great. <laughs> Have you made you know, the them all? Do is, you make them? Now, the, the funny thing is, do, do I make the recipes? Yes. No, no, I don't, because oh. I'm not really that interested in whether they're good recipes or not. I'm just interested in their historic value. So it, it depends on my subject. Actually, uh -huh. you asked about cod. Cod has lots of recipes, but many of them are horrible. Oh. <laughs> but they're historically interesting. Okay. Now, when I did my Bass book, all of those recipes were good. Mm -hmm. And when I did the milk book... There were just so many recipes to choose from that I thought, mm -hmm. why not just pick good ones? Right. So all those recipes are good. Oh, okay, good. But did you make them? I made a few of them. Okay. I made, I, I made a few of Do them. Do you but have I other people make them for you? No, I, I don't really, uh, I don't test the recipe. If it's a, you know, if it's an interesting source and an interesting recipe and mm -hmm. it's written in an interesting way, um, I, I'm happy. <laughs> uh, you're you're on your own, whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It's time for a break. We'll be right back in a few minutes with Mark Kurlansky discussing his book, Milk. My name is Paul Willis. I'm a fifth-generation hog farmer, and I owned and operated the Willis Free Range Pig Farm for over 41 years. I've dedicated my life to revitalizing sustainable hog farming methods in the Midwest and moving farms away from the common industrial practices. In 1998, I established the Nyman Ranch Pork Company. I'm proud to say Nyman Ranch has since grown into a network of over 740 independent family farmers and ranchers today. At Nyman Ranch, our animals are raised with care. 
We believe that the quality of an animal's life impacts the quality of the meat. Our high standards were developed with the help of animal welfare expert, Dr. Temple Grandin, and are among the strictest in the industry. All of our animals live outdoors or in deeply bedded pens, and they're never given antibiotics or added hormones ever, and are only fed a high quality 100% vegetarian diet. Whether they're raising hogs, cattle, or lamb, Nyman Ranch farmers and ranchers share our commitment to traditional farming, raising livestock in the way our parents and grandparents did, and supporting our rural communities. We share a common belief that humane and sustainable methods produce the best possible flavor. Learn more about our work at Nyman Ranch at nymanranch.com. Hi, it's Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, interviewing Mark Kurlansky about his lengthy and interesting book, <laughs> Milk. Hi, Mark. We're Hi. back. It's, it's, it's not that lengthy. We're oh, not talking I, Tolstoy here. <laughs> well, no. I think, um, you know, I read uh, lots of books about cheese, and it's a long book compared to cheese books. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, and compared to recipe books, which you don't have to read. <laughs> right. Right. So anyway, for me, it was long. And I learned a lot. I mean, I just, I have lots of notes on all the things I learned. Like, I didn't realize Velveeta was named for velvet textured cheese. <laughs> I well, never also, thought also, of it. Also, it's not really cheese. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, that's why I never thought about Velveeta. And then when I saw in your book, it's it's named after velvet. Yeah. Yeah. So that was wild to me. And it was in 1918? Yeah, right there. It was yeah. invented. Uh, I mean, this is a fact I never knew. And I wanted well, to know. Well, there was a, uh, there was a big um, growth in industrialized cheese yes. in the first part of the 20th century mm-hmm. because they had finally developed milking machines. Mm-hmm. It kind of amazed me. This is something that really surprised me. Okay. You know, in the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, You know, they were coming up with uh, steam-powered everything. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised that they could not come up with a milking machine. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it took quite a long time. But once they did, Mm -hmm. what happened was, you know, it used to be there really weren't dairy farms as we think of them today because, you know, how many cows can you milk by hand? Right. So, so you know, they were have, small farms. Yeah, you'd have a farm, and on the farm you'd have three or four cows. Mm-hmm. Now, with milking machines, you could have 50 cows or 100 cows. Today, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of cows. Right. <clears throat> and one of the really odd things to me about the whole history of dairy mm-hmm. is that most things in general are production bears a direct relationship to demand. Mm-hmm. And it never seemed to with milk. Huh. It, it was always about 
producing as much milk as you possibly could. And once they got the milking machine, they could produce lots of milk without thinking about who wanted all this milk. Mm -hmm. So Uh, then they had to come up with a plan for what to do with it. Right. And then that's when they started coming up with a lot of industrial cheese. Mm -hmm. And, And women who used to make cheese... No, they they lost their jobs of making well, cheese on the a, farm. This is a very funny thing, you know. This is all the prejudices that people have. Mm-hmm. It was firmly believed that only women could make cheese, mm-hmm. but then it was also firmly believed that only men could work in factories. Okay. So what do you do with a cheese factory? You switch it to men. Right. <laughs> Yeah, because so the women lost their cheesemaking jobs. Right, but at first there was a tremendous skepticism about this industrial cheese just because it was being made by men. And mm-hmm. Cheese being made by men seems like a dubious enterprise. Huh. Now, was it Wisconsin where they, they became the leading cheese-producing uh, state? Yes, yes, um, because of that industrialization right. <clears throat> and right. huge milk production. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now um, what's next? So I want to know what are the most important ideas in this book and have they changed at all since it was published in 2019 now that we're at the end of 2000, uh, 2018, and now that we're at the end of 2019? Uh, not really anything in particular has changed. I mean, when you're, when you're talking about things that people argue about, you know, one argument rises and another argument falls, and mm-hmm. then the old argument comes back in mm-hmm. and stuff. So there are those sort of fluctuations, but... but um, I mean, what, what, what's going on, which I wrote about in my book, is, is that small farms are dying. Yes, yes. And that process is certainly continuing. Mm-hmm. And in the cheese industry or the artisanal cheese industry, we're very concerned about that because we like the small cheese makers mostly. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's kind of a curious thing, a good thing, that, that actually that business is... is Really doing all right. I mean, there's a considerable demand for artisanal cheese. Um, I would, you would be better off being a small-scale cheese maker than a small-scale milk producer. Uh huh. Yes, that's why a lot of people go into it. I think. Right. Yeah. Um, now, how do you think global warming is affecting the entire dairy industry? Well, <laughs> that, that is a a big question. Very complicated question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it it might even have some benefits. For, uh, <clears throat> it might make grass-fed uh, cows more practical in some places than they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is that? Well, because if you're not having uh, if you if you're having mild winters, uh, you can graze the cows all year round. Ah. See, the, the thing that people kind of miss, because there's this uh, mystique about grass-fed, and everybody wants grass-fed, and because of it, um, people will may pay more for grass-fed. But actually, grass feeding is the cheapest way to feed a cow. 
As long as you have the grass growing. Ah, because you don't have to buy it. Right. Mm. Uh, the the only problem is that uh, um, some grains uh, cause uh, higher production of milk than grass. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Now, I noticed um, one thing you write about is the American welfare appraise, appraisal. Uh, you can you can use antibiotics when needed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a very complicated thing. Also, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I have talked to many farmers who reject organic and they reject, mm-hmm. uh, you know, animal welfare. Uh, certificates they do mm-hmm. because they think that it is cruel not to treat sick cows with medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a this is a complicated issue with strong feelings on all sides. Mm-hmm. There, there there is also a problem um, that we seem to be get, getting exposed to too many antibiotics. Right. <clears throat> and but, that's getting more and more press, it seems. Yes, like. yes. Yeah. But, but you know, um, I always go back to Rachel Carson's uh, book, Silent Spring. Mm-hmm. And most people don't realize this, but Rachel Carson never called for the banning of DDT. Hmm. She said it was being overused and it being being used badly, and we have to start using it carefully. Hmm. And I think that's true of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, the the real solution, you know, if you just absolute banning creates problems. Right. But what you really want to do is find a rational way of using. Right. But we don't trust people. Well, for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think we don't trust, you know, in industrial farms because they'll overuse everything. Uh, and we don't, you know, so we get a bad taste in our mouth. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, to me, a lot of crazy stuff goes on, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. like the whole argument about GMO foods. Mm-hmm. I think, and most farmers think, GMO foods are a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, I mean, this is the craziest thing. So they, they develop these, these plants that are resistant to pesticides. Mm-hmm. Great. So now you don't have to use pesticides. Wrong. They use pesticides with the plants because the plants are pesticide resistant. And that makes no sense. It makes no sense. And these pesticides are are absolute poison. Then people Mm -hmm. go around saying, you know, that GMO food is poison. It's not the GMO food that's poison. It's the pesticides they use with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Now I have one more question. I'd like to know how you picked the cheeses to feature in the raw craftsmanship chapter. Huh. <laughs> well, probably largely personal prejudices. Ah, 
if okay. you name a, if you name a cheese, I'll tell you why I picked it. Okay, Gouda, Howda, whatever you call it. Um, well, that's one where uh, many years ago I used to cover Holland for uh, the International Herald Tribune, <laughs> and and I was stuck. I was struck with. The difference between industrial and Holland's a very industrial country, but the Borenkasse, the farm cheese, was so different and so much better. Mm, okay. And so, Chauda, you know, not only don't we know how to pronounce it, but we don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so you discovered how to way back. Yes. It was one of your first favorite cheeses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what about Roquefort? Oh, Roquefort is definitely one of my favorite cheeses. This is a complete personal prejudice. I, I just, I, I, I love Roquefort, and and it's a great story. This this strange little town on a yes, yes, um, on a mountain ridge with these caves, yes, uh, where yes. everything gets moldy. And I, I and I it's love, sheep. It's sheep. Yeah, and I, 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 I love the way the uh, European Union went in and said, oh, well, you can't age them on these wooden shelves anymore because it's not hygienic. And, and so they took them out and put in plastic shelves and discovered that you didn't... That it didn't cheese, taste right. Cheese wasn't any good when you aged it in plastic <laughs> shelves. So they had to put it back. They had to put it back, except mm-hmm. for one guy who always refused to do it in the first place. <laughs> Now, what about um, your Basque selection, Oso Arati? Yeah, well, this, you know, see, these are all personal prejudices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot you're of, admitting it. It doesn't yeah, say that I, in the book. I, I spend a lot of time in Basque country, and, uh, and I, I, I drive around. I have certain farms that I go mm-hmm. to. There's a very distinct difference between the, the high mountain G's and the low mountain mm. G's. And, okay. I prefer the, the 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 high mountain. Is um, it drier? Is it what? How's it different? It's um, more pungent. Mm, mm, stronger. Yeah. Okay. And what about Greek feta? Is that one of your favorites, or was that a, just no, you had to throw it, it in? I, I, I like it fine, but it's <laughs> one of my favorites. I just thought it was a a good story. Okay. <laughs> and Icelandic skyer. I was interested in that. It's a fresh cheese, not a yogurt. Right, although people probably don't realize that. It's, they're starting to sell it in the U.S. It doesn't yeah. It doesn't have any fat, so it's really good cheese, uh, mm-hmm. you know, really good food. And, mm-hmm. you know, people just eat it like zero-fat yogurt, but it's actually not yogurt. <laughs> um, but it's, but it's, it it's, tastes it's, very similar. It does. It yeah. does. And yeah. it's... it's it's very good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes back to the Vikings. <laughs> and Every, some, everything in Iceland goes back yeah, to the Vikings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, I love that you included the story of Stilton versus Stitchelton because I know Joe Schneider. Ah. So that was like a great story to read in your book. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it just shows how crazy things get. I was surprised that he started it in 2004. That was the date in the book. Yeah. I, I didn't realize it was that old. Oh, you Stitchleton. thought it would be later? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. That's what he said. 
I'm sure he told the truth. <laughs> anyway, so I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been uh, great to speak to you. Um, do you have any further comments to make on cheese or milk or? Well, I would ju- I would I would just say this that, um, you know, everybody when they're you know getting on all the things about farmers and all the things they're doing wrong and stuff should should try to remember that farmers are remarkable people who work extremely hard, never take a single day off, and are absolutely dedicated to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And and this notion of farmers as evil people trying to poison us, you know, there may be a few of those, but that is really an exception. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, so I, I, would, I would like people to uh, have uh, some respect for farmers. Now, I think my audience, uh, the artisanal cheese lovers... Uh, and makers, I think we know that. Uh-huh. You know, I think yeah. because we love to hang out with farmers. <laughs> oh, they're, they're remarkable people, you know. I, this was very uh, enlightening to me because I'm more of an ocean guy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm more used to fishermen. <laughs> Uh, and I think fishermen are great, but I never thought much about farmers. But, okay. Okay. Um, I'm not like a landed agricultural kind of person, and I, I just was very moved. I mean, I went to dairy farms all over the world, mm-hmm. and I just thought these people were tremendous. Oh, good. That's good to hear. Okay. Thank you, Mark Kurlansky, for coming on the show and talking about your book, Milk. And uh, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.